0: Welcome to episode 198 of the Ski Podcast. Thanks for joining us, listener. Today is a very special episode, as I am joined today by a record-breaking skier,
1: Dave the Rocket Riding. Hi, Dave. How are you today? Hello. I'm all uh, I'm all right. A little bit fatigued still from the night race. Um, I normally like an early night, so a night race and uh, adrenaline, etc. cetera. I'm not asleep before probably 2 a.m., so yeah. Getting right.
0: Okay, and, uh, you know, we'll come to that race in Schladming, which happened on Wednesday of this week, not very long ago just now. Just remind me where you are right now, Dave.
1: I'm actually in the Utztau Valley, very close to Obergurgel, where my my sponsor, so, yeah, just having yeah. a couple of days off and then I'll do a, do a bit of training here before heading over to Chamonix.
0: Okay, and is that your kind of base for the season? Do you have a single
1: base that you, you know, retreat to between races? No, we don't actually have a base because when we're always on the road and especially in the winter with with having 13 races on the calendar it's it's very much race to race and and training venue to training venue around the races so yeah we don't we don't have a base as such just the the back of the van and my suitcase <laughs>
0: yeah well nice to be able to uh, retreat to a place that you do know well i mean we've had you on the podcast before. It was a long time ago, back in lockdown. I'm not sure many of us have fond memories of that time. Although I know for you, it's quite nice to be actually back at home for a sustained period. And then in uh, SASFA, we shared a tea bar in the summer when you were training. But a lot has happened in those years since uh, 2020. And lots of things I'd like to uh, to cover uh, just now. But you mentioned you're getting your training in prior to your next race. That will be in Chamonix next weekend. Is that right?
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah.
0: And you, you said you're training there. I mean, we tried. I'm going to be out in Chamonix. We tried to see if we could arrange this interview so that I met you in Chamonix. But you mentioned that you're not allowed to train there. Is that right? Or you can't train there in advance?
1: Yeah, I mean, on in any World Cup, you're not allowed to be on the race hill the, like seven days before the race. So it, we, it's never a case of training on the race hill. But we thought there might be a training opportunity in and around Chamonix on a different piece. However, that's that's not the case anymore. I don't know if it's the weather forecast or something. So... Just come back to the usual training stomping ground in Utztal and uh, doing it here instead. We're in Schladming anyway, so it's not, it's not that far.
0: Okay. A question I always like to ask my guests when they're on is when did you uh, ski last?
1: I'm guessing you skied maybe
0: early this morning. Would that be right?
1: No, I've actually had um, I've actually got two two days off penciled in. I, well, other than a gym session or whatever, but off skis for two days since the Schladming night race. So it was uh, Wednesday evening was my my last.
0: So li- li- literally, it was in Schladming, and we might as well talk about that now because the conditions were far from ideal for that race.
1: No, it was it was rather moist to say the least in the evening, and I even pulled out the umbrella for uh, the second run inspection because it was it was torrential rain. So,
0: I mean, I guess is that it's got to be
1: worse than it's snowing, or is it the same kind of challenge because visibility is going to be such an issue? Yeah, it's a similar similar challenge visibility wise that it it really changes the piece. I mean, luckily they had a really good surface before before the race, so. The piece held up probably one of the best rain races I've ever skied on a Piste. The the problem on the night race with the rain, it's not just the rain on the goggles, but because the floodlights are, are beaming down on the Piste, and the floodlights kind of reflect even more in all, all the raindrops. Certain times on the Piste, it was really hard to see because of the floodlights. And your
0: start order becomes more important in those sort of conditions?
1: Yeah, it does. Obviously, the second one goes in reverse order anyway, so you kind of always shooting back to the the front if you can. But yeah, it's uh, it's massively important to to make sure that the start number's good. Well, we'll come back to this season. I wondered
0: if uh, I could just take you back a little bit. I think we're not going to go through like the whole of your uh, story. I think lots of people listening to this podcast will know that you you started and you learned to ski at Pendle Dry Slope in the UK. But that journey has taken you to become a World Cup uh, winner. And 2022, a couple of years ago at Kitzbühel, you won your first slalom race. And I think I'm right in saying, are you the oldest winner of a World Cup slalom?
1: Yeah, exactly. 35 and the oldest oldest ever winner, oldest first time winner of any race or any world discipline and, and the oldest fallen winner.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is an amazing achievement. You know, I wonder if I could kind of take you back because, you know, that's a long time. I mean, we we're saying I think it's 11 years after you made your debut because I was looking through the FIS website earlier. Altabadia, was that your first World Cup yeah, race? It was actually, yeah. Twenty twenty eleven. so that's a you know a long time between yeah I straddled uh, between those two right <laughs> <laughs> you remember it remember it yeah. well and um, I think with Kitzbühel itself you know the race where you did win the race was brought forward a day earlier did that make any difference to you do you think that helped you relative to your competitors
1: no I mean one day here or there's no difference and it was the same for everyone because we'd just raced the weekend before in Wengen so everyone had the same build up, was exactly the same for everyone. So it wasn't a case of that sort of transition to Saturday making it better for me. In the end, it, I guess it did because I, I pulled out my best skiing on the Saturday. I did good job it wasn't Sunday, but um no, I think I think it was it was just a case of the same for everyone.
0: You've performed well at Kittsfield prior and it, evidently it's a uh, one of your favorite places to uh, to race. Could you put it down to anything where there just lots of factors that came together on that particular day that made the difference?
1: I think, yeah, the fact is that I'm very good in Kitspiel now. I've learned it over the years. I know how to deal with all the terrain. I know how to – it's always icy. Ice suits me. I'm good on the ice. I'm good when it's difficult. So, yeah, Kitspiel, it suits me. And then on the day, I I was able to ski free and didn't make any mistakes in a very difficult course set when everyone else was – struggling really yeah I mean it's interesting you say oh
0: you like it when it's difficult I think most people listening to this podcast would probably consider (laughs) any of the courses difficult and and you said you know you like Kitspool and you know it well I was speaking to Chemi Alcott in another podcast a while ago and she came out and she met you in the summer I think there was a chairlift excuse me a gondola named after you in Kitspool
1: she was interviewing you around that is that right? Yeah, so every winner in Kitzbühel of the downhill and slalom gets gets the gondola. So yeah, it was a gondola presentation for that. But so she was
0: interviewing you there, and you were kind of going through the course kind of by foot from the top in the summit. You obviously you know know it really well. That's that's what
1: really you feel makes a difference for you. Yeah, we actually walked down the whole downhill as well, and and that's way too scary for me to give a go. But yeah, I've got a lot of experience, and while the younger guys on the World Cup circuit, they probably are in more of their peak physical condition than I am. I mean, I'm still very fit and strong, as strong as as good as I've ever been, but I'm not as young anymore. I certainly have the experience, and Kitzbühel's a piece where where you definitely need that, and I'm able to to draw on my experience of how to use all the terrain, where to let the skis go, where you have to hold back, and and it, and it works for me. Okay, well,
0: fantastic. Evidently, it does. Can I ask you a couple of questions about the racing and and maybe racing in general, really? I mean you're known for your your second run charge. That's often you know where you're gaining time on your competitors that Is that just a natural part of your strategy, how you go about skiing?
1: Would you ever kind of favor the first run for trying to get an advantage? I mean I've been leading two World Cups after the first run and one in Levy and I and I crashed on the second run and then the first podium in Kitzbühel I was winning the first run so I have been in in very good positions after first runs but I I I definitely free up a little bit when I'm not not in the sort of top eight or whatever it is and there's sort of less on the line and and I seem to ski more free when there's a bit less pressure. So I'd love to be able to perform first and second run. It is very tough mentally as well, but I, I enjoy having a, having a real go at the second runs and that's probably where my second run charges come from, yeah.
0: I was listening to Drake commentating on one of your runs recently and he was just a whole time referring to how aggressive you are on that second run. I mean, here's another question that I think maybe some listeners would be interested in, I certainly, you have that gap. Between the first run and the second run, what do you do in that period of time there? How do you kind of recover or focus yourself? You know, how much time do you have and what do you do in it?
1: Yeah, so normally on a normal race day, the first one will be around 10 o'clock and the second one is always three hours later, so one o'clock. And because I start in the first 15, I'm normally at the bottom by about 20 past 10. Obviously, there's a second run inspection, they change the courses and we inspect an hour before the second run so if the if the second runs at one the inspection will be 12 to twelve thirty, and then you you go to the start whenever you think depending what your start is on the second run but yeah very much a case of if there's any media you've got to do some media interviews get back to the team hospitality and do a little bit of a recovery whether it's a spin on the bike or just a walk around and and try and get some food on board because it, it only seems like we're racing from 10 till one or 10 till two yeah. if you're doing well after the first run yeah. but the race day is so long. It's actually normally a seven-hour day and it, you consume so many calories because of inspections, stress, the warm-up before the first run and all this stuff. It gets kind of forgotten about. So it's really important to keep the calories coming in when you can and, and with time before to to digest them before the second run. So yeah, get some lunch down, you know, about 11 if you can. Not too much, but something simple like Plain pasta or something like that yeah i mean you obviously burning through you know as you say a lot of calories and i can imagine a
0: lot of that is you know adrenaline driven because the actual you know descent itself it's evidently
1: very intense but it's not for a particularly long period of time well yeah but that's what ever that's where, where everyone is slightly wrong in their the sort of theory around the slalom day i started wearing a heart rate monitor in world cup about 2015 and I turn it on when I put my boots on and I turn it off when I took my boots off just to see what a day was about yes yeah, so as soon as you put your boots on up to the top and you're doing some warm up courses and then obviously the race is is a minute long but I can't replicate the heart rate that I get in a race at home because of the intensity the stress and how hard it is and so in between the runs my heart rate isn't coming down massively so for a seven hour ski day I can average around 117, even 119 beats per minute for seven hours with obviously maximum peaks in and around that. So the data we've got on on a race day is it's a savage day and for the body. Yeah, you think of a cyclist going out for seven hours and averaging 120, you're tired. So we've got to be ready for a long day while sustaining these massively intense bouts of performance in it and focus. Right. I mean, that is interesting.
0: I think you may know that I do a bunch of uh, running and uh, certainly monitoring my heart rate different times. What does it peak at then? Presumably it peaks in the race itself during the descent. What, do, what would your heart rate peak at?
1: Yeah, for me, now I've got a bit older, it's not quite the same as when I first started. When, when I, in about 2015, I got like 191, 192. This year, I've not actually checked my peak too much, but it's, it'll be around 187 to 190. Like Schladming, being closer to Kitzbühel, I'm not quite as recovered. So my heart rate isn't actually as high as Kitzbühel, for, for instance. So yeah, it's, there's a lot goes into it, and a lot that people probably just totally like don't even think about. Carb drinks, energy gels, all these things are massively on my mind in a race day to, to keep the carbs coming in, to keep fueled up.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting. And I think you're right. It is counterintuitive. It's not what people would necessarily consider. And it's also interesting to hear you mentioned that maximum heart rate of, you know, 180, high 180s, 190. There is a triathlon magazine called 220. And the reason it's called 220 is because typically you do 220 minus your age to work out your maximum heart rate. And yours should be something like, uh, you know, low 180s, but you're hitting high 180s, 190 very very uh, general guideline to it but so interesting to hear how it works like that and I guess that informs a lot of your uh, training as well Uh, you know I do know because we've discussed it before I've I think I've maybe read about it that you and the team do like a a park run when you're training in the UK and
1: you can knock out a very fast park run time yeah I think it's more me and my coach than the whole team but me and my coach certainly get involved in the park runs and Yeah, the reason we started doing it is because it's 5K. It's it's not okay. It's a bit quicker than 20 minutes now, but it's a a great sort of intense bout of exercise. It's really hard to replicate. And I love doing it because it's kind of in a competitive environment and it's always at the end of my week. So it's like, right, well, put out whatever you've got left. And it's a great event just in general. There's so many people turn up of all running levels and, and I just love it. But I managed to go sub 17 for a PB. That was two summers ago, and then, but yeah, regularly seventeen oh three this summer was my best. So
0: that is very, very impressive. I I love park run. I've got a few local to me, and I do it on a on a regular basis. But I've never never managed to go below eighteen, even when I was closer to your age. But yeah. you're right. The community side of things from part run is fantastic, but you're also right that it is a competitive sort of thing. And, you know, to be going around 17 and sub 17 is absolutely fantastic. I mean, that is a really impressive time. I don't know if you've ever looked, they have, they give you age grading scores to kind oh, of yeah. give you a rough always, always of how that is. These,
1: these, I'm always looking at these stats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you know what that comes out at? It's, it's kind of high seventies at my age, but my problem is I, I do too much weight training in the week. So, yeah. and I'm a bit too heavy to be a runner, but yeah, I somehow managed to stumble my way around a 5k. But I think 5k for me feels like a marathon. Let me just take you back to with then. So you won
0: that World Cup. You know, you referred to your age there, uh, the oldest winner of a World Cup so long. i I'm pretty sure in saying I'm right in saying that on the uh, second run, you got to the bottom, you had the fastest time, but then you had to wait for another five competitors who were faster than you in the first run to come down. What what's that like when you're at the bottom there, you know, watching each one come down?
1: Yeah, it's kind of you've done your bit and it's it's now out of your control. So nerve wracking kind of, but also like, yeah, you just gotta sit sit and wait and tick them off. And then obviously when there was only one more person to come and I was still leading, it it took me back to twenty seventeen when I was in the start and Hersher was leading at the bottom and They spent about two minutes flicking between me and Marcel of his expression at the bottom and my expression at the top. And I much preferred being at the bottom leading than I did like standing at the top still with it all to play for. So my job was done and then I could sit back and and kind of wait and see.
0: Maybe if it can't relax because it must be a strange kind of thing because in some respects, I mean, I know, you know, all of your competitors, you've been skiing against them, you know, for a long time. You train with them sometimes as well. But presumably, you can't help thinking, I hope they don't do well here.
1: Well, yeah, it's every man for himself on a race day, right? So I'm certainly not rooting for them to beat me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It must have been brilliant, that feeling uh, at the bottom. I mean, I know there's some uh, fantastic video and, you know, it it was clearly meant a huge amount to you. I know you've had, you know, a number of podiums in your career, but to uh, win a race, you were very emotional after that.
1: Yeah I mean the whole team it's been a it's been a hell of a long journey and I've had the same coaching staff for pretty much all of it and I know how much it means to them as well so actually the first thing I was thinking was I'm glad I've done it for all the help I've received over the years all the sponsors that have helped me even the sponsors like when I first decided that I was going to give this skiing a real go after I'd finished college and th- those people that helped me in the really early days I'm I was just so grateful that I could show that they're support my coach's sacrifice was was worth it i will never stay the most successful british skier i'll I'll guarantee you that and and the next generation are ridiculously good but i will always be the the first one to get the win and so I, i i'm really proud of what i've been able to sort of push the bar to in british skiing and And then I can leave it to the next generation to take it further. And that is actually a really good segue to the uh, next section.
0: And I can tell you that, you know, on behalf of, let's say, British skiers, you know, obviously huge congratulations that you mentioned that next generation there. And, you know, the last few years you've seen amazing consistency or to me, it seems that you've seen amazing consistency in your skiing. And you've had your seventh podium this year at um, Madonna di Campiglio. Is that it?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Seventh podium this year at Madonna di Campiglio. And I think as well, that was another record uh, because
1: I uh, read that you're the oldest ever skier to podium as well. No, someone actually wrote that, but they got it wrong. I was actually 12 days too young. 12 (laughs) days younger than Giuliano Giuliano Razzoli. So uh, I'm the second oldest now. I think I'm the second, the fourth and the sixth oldest on a podium already. But yeah, so I'm the second. But I had to wait until... Until after Christmas, until I was old enough to be the oldest. So I was still too young in Madonna, but it's obviously, yeah, right up there with the oldest podium, 12 days, 12 days too young still
0: I was. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, there's still races to go for sure. And you're still competing, you know, and at a very high level. I mean, there have been five podiums in the last four winters, after two in your career prior to that. But you mentioned the team there. And what I found really interesting, Kitzbühel this year, I think you came fifth, but it was the teamwork that struck a lot of people in the UK industry. There were three British skiers in the top 20 for the first time, I believe. And you know, have Billy Major skiing with you and Laurie. They both pulled off personal bests at Kitzbühel as well. They've both got really good overall ratings. What's it like working together? as a team like that i get the impression that you're you know you're constantly helping to develop each other
1: yes yeah, exactly that it's it's the development that we're we're all on the hill together every single day pushing each other and it's that competitive spirit and competitive drive that we all have to improve and 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 that's one of the most important things in training is is to to have a good level every single day to know where the marker is of of good skiing and and we certainly have that as a group. I mean, I've seen their progression the last three years, and and they're absolutely amazing skiers, and and have a great future ahead. But so it didn't massively surprise me when we did manage to do three in the top twenty. It's really hard to do, and only Austria had more in the top twenty than us with four. So I think that puts into perspective how hard it is to get three races into the top twenty. They're they're right there with with me in training every single day, if not better. So. The 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 three of us we really push each other well and and it's good to see that they're now also making that step into the top the top twenty of the World Cups. That is that is great and you know it is really interesting because you know I was
0: looking at some of the the data and I think I'm right in saying they're both uh, 27. So I look back through your history, and when you were 27, you know there've been a lot of changes. You were kind of around 50th or something like that, and they're kind of higher than that now. So there's obviously that you mentioned before about the experience and how important that is. Do you think that we're going to see them pull that experience in and do you think they can progress at the same way as as well as you have over the the next decade?
1: Yeah, I see absolutely no reason why not. And like my journey was, was done really late because I, I didn't ski much when I was younger. So yeah, I see still massive improvement in what they can do and, and and uh, as they gain more experience on the world cup and figure out all the pieces yeah they will absolutely go on to to bigger and better things so yeah i'll i'll enjoy watching it when i certainly put my feet up whenever that is but for now yeah it's, um, i see great potential and and a great future for the three of us
0: well it's very exciting for sure and you know we're talking about you know that that process it takes a long time to uh, learn you, you mentioned that in altabadia 2011 your world cup debut i think you said you DNF'd or something like that and you had you know quite a few challenges like that in the in the early years or not qualifying to get to the second run but these guys are now consistently getting onto that second run so
1: you know it's definitely exciting how things are looking moving forward. Yeah massively and it, and it's really good that we don't kind of have a gap between generations it, well Billy's ranked 31 on the World Cup points for, for like how the start list works so very close to getting in the top 30 and it's really important that we we always have someone in the top 30 for the to be on tv for exposure and and to build the team for the future so it's going to be, it's going to be a great future, I'm sure, for British skiing, and I think this is just the start.
0: Well, it, it, you know, if you want to get an insight, listener, to how you know Dave's talking about the team and how they all work together, Laurie has got a fantastic YouTube channel which he runs called Behind the Brits, and you know, some of those are fantastic, and I think they give you an insight as to how you train together as a team. You know, for example, I was watching something the other day where you're all kind of uh, spotting
1: each other for for squats, and that looked like big weights that you were lifting there you know what what were they on that day it wouldn't have been anything crazy on that day because we were sort of in between races so I think we had about 130 kilo on the bar but we didn't have the weight stands they managed to get stuck in a van that wasn't actually there so yeah we were kind of picking the bar up adding the weights on the back shifting around and yeah just getting it done really it's uh just doing it in the hotel's garage we just get things done as Brits because we don't have the same Funding as these bigger teams who have whatever, but yeah, we we still do the same workload or whatever, and we're willing to do it.
0: It's interesting because I was going to kind of lead on to some of those discussions about. I mean, let's just start with the logistics of the kit because you have a huge amount of kit that you need to move around. I don't know, you know, how many between the three of you, how many pairs of
1: skis, and I uh, don't know if you, by the sounds of it, you're moving your own weights with you as well. Just if you think about the training as well, you we have. As a team, we probably have over 100 slalom gates for training. We probably have all the servicemen's benches, boxes. We have over 50 pairs of skis easily between us, probably more 60, 70. And the coaches have to put their heads together to figure out where everything's going and, and where we need them and, and everything like that. So luckily now we all do the same program, so which makes it easier, but... Yeah, there's a hell of a lot. Yeah, you program. mean when you say you all do the same programme, meaning you're all on the World Cup circuit? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and the younger guys have the points now that they don't need to do the Europa Cup. So.
0: And so how, how literally do you move it then? Because you, know, you talk about 100 gates, 60, 70 pairs of skis. Can you get all of that in a minibus? Or do you have like yeah, a... Look at the, well, know, luckily what?
1: now, actually, we have we had a van donated to us by a very nice lady from Sasfe who we stay with in yeah. called it called Inga And... Uh, yeah, we use one of the vans as like a, a moving container with gates and all that sort of stuff in. And then the skis obviously go in the, in a van on their own because they're, they're obviously the most important bit of equipment. But yeah, we have three vans that we, we travel around in. And yeah, one of them is very much a moving container. Like all these Austrians and everyone, they can go home between each race and just take what they need. But we're out here it's funny because I've got a bag that I never take home and I've got some t-shirts in it that are like over 15 years old, but I'm just, well, for one I'm Northern, so I'm a tight ass, but yeah, I just just stay in that bag and I just keep wearing them. So all my stuff stays in Europe. We've been talking about the team. Obviously the focus has been on, you know, on
0: Billy and Laurie and skiing with you as well, but who else do you have in your team there, the support staff who are going around with you?
1: Yeah. So we have three that are always with us. Like it's a small team. um, Tristan Glass-Davis, my my coach or the main coach of the team he's been my coach since 2011, so a long time then Jai Geyer is is mine and Billy's serviceman, but way more than that, he, he's massage assistant, etc. Then we've got Alan Baxter, he's with he's with us and he's been with us now for three years and right. in the winter we're luckily joined by a guy called Brad Morgan, who I actually I actually skied with when I was young at Pendle and he was in racing as well, so all British, all pretty young, except Alan. Alan made his fiftieth birthday at Christmas, so I'm not sure we have to. We can class Alan as young anymore, but all Brits and all very passionate, and and the coach and staff are willing to yeah do uh, going above and beyond expectation because they kind of have to because we don't have the. You see the Swiss team, French, and that they'll have at least probably eight to ten members of staff with their with their team to prepare peace to prepare skis it's probably more than that but yeah so we're a small team but luckily the the coaching staff are willing to work they do the work of eight to ten people because yeah they have to
0: well, I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, interesting you mentioned uh, Alan there. I interviewed Leslie McKenna a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or something like that, who was out with him in Salt Lake City on yeah. that occasion when he won his medal. And, and listener, if you'd like to know more about that, I'll, I'll put a link into the show notes. But uh, if you're not familiar, listener, Alan Baxter, extremely successful British slalom skier who well, won a medal at the Olympics. Full story too long for this podcast but uh we have it in there and, and and so that's your team and you referred to before you know funding people funding you in the uh, early years i think in your career you know racing for team gb funding has gone through different levels but the situation at the moment i mean it costs a lot of money to employ the staff to get you around uh, you know from resort to resort you know are you getting that adequate funding now to make it work for all three of you
1: yeah just about it's it's always it's always on the back of our mind and I don't know, even in December, we kind of knew that we only had funding until the end of February. I'm kind of hopeful that we've got some more now to get us through through March when the, the last World Cups are. But yeah, it's always on the mind and, and the real hard bit was last year and it definitely had an effect on my season, just the stresses of UK sport leaving Alpine and we're always staring down the barrel of what do we have for next season and and it's been a constant thing that I've had to deal with my whole career. But it kind of as long as I know what I've got, I can... I can perform and have it in my head and keep my mind calm. If my mind's calm, then that's fine. But anyone out there that knows of funding that could help would be massively appreciated. Well, listener, if if that's uh, struck
0: a chord, then you can uh, definitely get in contact. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I think, do you feel the funding is often related in parallel to the chances of getting a medal at you know major games so continually being able to pick up podiums do you you know feel like you have you know a responsibility there somehow aside from your own you know personal success
1: for sure yeah and I kind of I hate the whole stigma around Olympics and major champs because yeah like for me the World Cups as as, Kitsbühel's as big as the Olympics for me it always has been and and the biggest race on the world cup out of it is always the one that i want to do the best in for every season but the problem i had with the last olympics was i won in kipsbeeil 3 weeks before it so obviously i had the form to to do it in, at the olympics but well the, the sort of sh- short story is i'd been trying so long to 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 win a race at 35 winning the emotional come down that i had after that race was kind of it was well, I didn't expect it, but it was huge because, yeah, 35 years of trying to do something and then I achieve it on the biggest stage of, of alpine skiing and win Kitzbühel. I, I never really recovered for the rest of the season mentally because I was just drained. But, yeah, I had to go to China of all places in quarantine for two weeks where we weren't allowed yeah. to go out of the athlete village or see anybody else. It was it was tough. And um, I got 13th and then we lost all the funding. So, yeah it was it it sucked and uh, it's not skiing isn't a sport like cycling you can't you can't predict the things the the results as easily and that's what uk sport don't like they like pedaling around a track with a specific watts with a with a skin suit that's (laughs) going to make you faster than the other nations and and hey presto you got a medal but skiing's a bit different to that and yeah it's we definitely get treated harder than other sports but yeah it's something we've got to deal with and we crack on
0: well, we do crack on. And as you mentioned, you know, it does look positive for the future. We're seeing Billy and Laurie uh, progressing really well. I do have a couple of questions for you about them. Laurie, I notice at the moment, doesn't have a moustache. But controversially, he did have a massive one before. What's your view on that?
1: <laughs> My view is he looks ridiculous. <laughs> but he, he, did that for, he did that for Movember, didn't he? So it's more than mullet. That he's rocking you don't see it on tv he's rocking a mullet at the moment he calls it it's it's something along the lines of race season is mullet season and yeah he gets this horrible mullet going but it's his it's his character and that's why that's why laurie is laurie and we love laurie for being laurie some some things he does is is, isn't my taste and certainly his haircut or mustache but no very he loves it so i'm not i'm not going to tell him to change it (laughs)
0: His personality <laughs> comes across in his videos for sure. Okay, here's my question about Billy then. Um I've seen him showing off with his football skills in some of the uh, videos. Does he does he fancy himself, do you think he could uh you know become a, a Liverpool player and an alternative career?
1: Bill, I don't, know, really. I don't know really. Yeah, we we like to play donkey or red ass. If you drop the ball, you get the ball kicked at your backside. So no, yeah, he's 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 quite skillful with the football. So yeah, he's he's probably he probably would have a decent shot at it. OK, and i got another question then.
0: You know, we mentioned that next generation, but the next generation isn't just the guys who are skiing in World Cup uh, already. In the last week, we just seen some amazing uh, results from Zach Carrick-Smith. He's been out at the World Youth Olympic Games in South Korea, and he's picked up two gold medals and a silver medal. Uh, he got the gold in the combined and also in the slalom and silver in the GS. Uh, I think he's 16 years old. I must admit, until this week, I you know, wasn't aware of his parents, but I hadn't been aware of him.
1: Do you know, Zach? I do know. I know all three Carrick Smith brothers. There's three of them. He's got a twin brother, Freddie, and an older brother of two years older, Luca. So I actually trained with Luca about two and a half weeks ago. We were in the same place and he, he hopped in with us. So.
0: But those results are pretty outstanding. I mean, evidently, that is the first ever gold medal by a skier in an olympic competition and you know so therefore it's never happened before breaking records like you have along the way how what advice maybe would you offer him to try and get that transition to then
1: you know subsequently move on to you know the senior circuit i don't think i need to give much advice to be honest i think it's just <laughs> more understanding of the journey ahead understanding that it's not all plain sailing and you've got to take the rough with the smooth, but as long as you keep the right mindset, the right focus and the right lifestyle, then I mean, he compared to me at 16, you'd laugh at my results when I was 16, but that was kind of my own unique journey. But first of all, he's got a twin brother who is, if you look at the results, they almost mirror each other. So if they, uh, I don't know if we had another spot or if he wasn't allowed to go, or we were only allowed to take one, I don't know, but his brother could have also had, well, okay, only one of them can win gold in each race unless they tied, but they could have had another three medals. And that's what is so good with British skiing now. You've got people podium in the World Cup, but you've also got Billy and Laurie about to make the step into the top 30 for, the say, the next seven to 10 years of the World Cup. But then you've also got the generation below winning Youth Olympic Games. So I can't bang the drum enough to UK sport that we have a pipeline now. Of people coming through, proven like this isn't just like one random person coming through. There's a proven pipeline of three on the World Cup now, and the next generation after Billy and Laurie, who are 21 years younger than me, which is ridiculous. Yeah, we need to we need to get the funding coming in, and and the future of British skiing is going to be incredible. And and also people like in the year 2000 to 2007 of of British skiers in general, not just guys but girls also there's a whole group of them that that are coming through and the future is really really good but yeah we need we need the support and we need to we need to find a way to yeah to make the next generation a pathway to do it
0: i mean that sounds like a really positive point to finish off you mentioned, uh, you know, Freddie, I, I read an interview where Zach said that, you know, sometimes he beats his brother, sometimes he beats him. It, it can be the other way around. So with them and with the many other skiers coming through, at least they know that they'll be able to, you know, follow in footsteps that you've put down and everything that you've shown that British skiers have the ability to do despite the various uh, challenges. And if they keep being able to get podiums, then that will help funding for the rest of the season and in the future as well. So you know, I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, Dave. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you and, and wish you and the team the uh, best of luck for the rest of the season, uh, particularly at Chamonix. I will be there. I've got a media pass. I'll be in the crowd somewhere. I won't be in the mix zone, <laughs> but watch out for me waving like a, a Union
1: Jack as you come down. So, so You'll best have to luck get one of the Rocket Russia. Union Jacks. <laughs> yeah. All I'll, the I'll listeners, it. if, it, if um, you go to ski racing, ski race supplies or whatever, or search my I've got a few merch items out there, so you could all pop a Dave Riding hat on or something there. SkiRacing.co.uk, that's where they are. Search Dave Riding merchandise. I'm sure you'll find it. So It's always nice to see those items around. I will
0: uh, do that from the tribunes or wherever I manage to uh, get to. But otherwise, thanks so much for your time today, Dave. Enjoy your days off, and we'll all be supporting you for the rest of the season. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. That was such a pleasure talking with Dave. What he's achieved as a British skier, racing against the odds with next to no funding, is quite incredible. His career is far from over yet, but with seven podiums to his name and that record-breaking World Cup win, he has put down a fantastic foundation for next generations of alpine skiers who are already putting down great results. Now, feedback. I enjoy all feedback about the show. I'd like to know what you think, especially about our features, so please contact me on social at skipodcast or by email at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, there are three things you can do to help. Review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Or you can book your ski hire within Sportrent Rent and get a guaranteed discount using the code SKIPODCAST or just take the link in the show notes. There are over 200 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up with and quite unbelievably, all of them were listened to in the last week. I suspect that that's one listener out there who's listened uh, through all of the back catalogue. If that's you, uh, that is impressive work. and It makes sense, as there is so much to listen to in our archives. Just go to theskipodcast.com, search around the tags and categories, and you're bound to find something of interest to you. Now, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at The Ski Podcast. But for now, I'd like to thank InSport for sponsoring the show and thank my very special guest today, Dave the Rocket Riding. Finally, listener, thank you for joining us and until next time, goodbye.